Hello, campus cronies, and welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, former college professor, current college administrator, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from 1 to 5 on my very own serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to 5 being very serious. Hey y'all, so before I get started, (laughs) I just want to say that I promise we will have some lower crime scale ratings soon. You know, like some episodes rated a 3 or below, (laughs) but this episode is rated a 4, and if we knew exactly what happened, I'm almost certain it would be rated a 5. It's another one of those crazy stories that I just can't shake off, so that means you have likely heard about it before in some way or another. But again, it's a case that I always knew I wanted to cover, and I knew I wanted to cover it sooner than later because it has now been over 10 years since it happened, and we still have zero answers. This is the story of Lauren Spearer, a 20-year-old Indiana University student who seemed to disappear without a trace. But this story, this episode, has several possibilities of what might have happened to her. You see, in the summer of 2011, Lauren went out one night with some friends, but the last time she was quote-unquote seen seems to leave more questions than answers, especially among the group of friends she was last seen with. This episode is titled, Lauren's Last Night. So without further ado, let's get started. Spearer began attending Indiana University, or IU for short, in the fall of 2009. IU is located in Bloomington, Indiana, a city with a population of about 84,000 people. Lauren was originally from Scarsdale, New York, a town in Westchester County, which is located about 30 miles outside of Manhattan. And Lauren was actually one of several students from the East Coast attending IU. According to the Crime Weekly podcast, whose host covered this case in elaborate detail, by the way, IU has such a large student population from the Eastern U.S. that the locals in Bloomington often refer to these students as the Coasties. And these particular students typically come from affluent, wealthy families, which means they can afford higher class, nicer type of housing than an average college student can usually afford. I say that because where these students lived in Bloomington, Indiana, is a very important aspect of this case. So I will definitely circle back around to the location of their off-campus housing later in the episode. Lauren, though, had a heart of gold, and I'm not just saying that to say that, because she was big into community service and helping others and just giving back to the communities around her. In high school, she traveled to New Orleans to volunteer with Habitat for Humanity in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. 
She was also a leader at the Scarsdale Synagogue Temples Tremont and Emmanuel, and after she went to college, she soon became involved in the IU Jewish community as well, even spending one of her spring breaks planting trees in Israel as a volunteer with the Jewish National Fund. Lauren was also very much into fashion and had a passion for clothing design, which is partly what led her to IU, because she chose to major in fashion merchandising. As I said previously, though, Lauren wasn't attending IU alone. According to a piece written by Ruth Bashinsky for Inside Edition Digital, Lauren's boyfriend of two years, 22-year-old Jesse Wolf, also was attending IU. Jesse was originally from the East Coast as well, and the two met years earlier at a summer camp in Pennsylvania called Camp Tawanda. Bashinsky reported for Inside Edition Digital that at the time of Lauren's disappearance, she and Jesse were in an exclusive relationship, and Jesse even hoped to marry Lauren one day. And you couldn't blame him because Lauren wasn't only beautiful on the inside with her caring, loving, kind heart, but she was just a naturally beautiful girl all around with long blonde straight hair and icy blue eyes. She was also a very petite young lady, standing at about 4 feet 11 inches tall and weighing about 90 to 95 pounds. Before I dive into the night Lauren disappeared, though, I need to kind of set up the scene and introduce some other important people in the story, whom I will refer to often throughout the episode. One of the first key players is 21-year-old Jason Rosenbaum, whose friends often just called him Jay, so I will also refer to him as Jay as well. Apparently, according to Crime Weekly, Jay knew both Lauren and Jesse because he had gone to that same camp, Camp Tawanda, though he came to IU from West Bloomfield, Michigan. Now, Jay Rosenbaum lived in a townhouse off campus located at five North townhomes in Bloomington, which is a high-end complex built specifically for IU students who can afford to live in them. Like, that's kind of the draw of these townhomes. But it's important to point out that these townhomes are located just minutes from downtown nightlife in Bloomington, with tons of popular hangouts for IU students. And when I say minutes, I mean it's just a two to three minute walk from the townhomes to the bars. Two doors down from Jay Rosenbaum in those same townhomes were two other IU students, roommates, 22-year-old Corey Rossman and 21-year-old Michael Beth. Now, Lauren didn't know Corey or Michael before attending college in Indiana, not like she did both Jay and her boyfriend Jesse. Rather, Lauren met these two guys for the first time just a few days before when they all went to the Indy 500 together. I also want to point out that IU has commonly been known as a party school. So much so that according to an article in the Chicago Tribune, an annual survey released by the Princeton Review in 2002 ranked Indiana University the number one party school in the country. <laughs> Though IU administration was in no way proud of that ranking, IU students seemed to, you know, boast about it and like as if the title were some sort of great honor. And 2011 wasn't too far removed from 2002, so during the time that Lauren went missing, the party scene among students at IU was still very much a common thing. So that brings us to the night in question, Lauren's last night before she seemed to have disappeared without a trace. On the night of June 2nd, 2011, Lauren, now a sophomore at IU, had been hanging out in her own apartment, a unit in the Smallwood Plaza Apartments, which is another one of those high-end, upscale complexes where only, like, wealthier students could afford to live. Her apartment was located even closer to the Bloomington Bars, being only about a one-minute walk away. 
Anyway, Lauren had been hanging out at her apartment, drinking some wine and watching an NBA Finals basketball game. She had also been texting with her boyfriend, Jesse, who, according to Inside Edition Digital, was also watching the NBA Finals that night with his fraternity brothers at an off-campus fraternity house. Eventually, though, and I'm not sure exactly what time this was, but Lauren texted Jesse and told him she was going to bed. He responded by saying okay and that if she woke up to call him and they'd talk. Jesse told authorities that that text was the last one he sent to Lauren before he went to bed himself a couple of hours later around 2.30 a.m. Here's the thing, though. Even though Lauren told Jesse she was going to bed, to bed is not where she went. Now, I have no idea if this were like a purposefully deceptive thing, like maybe she wanted to go have a night out by herself and didn't want her boyfriend to worry about her, or maybe her plans just changed at the last minute. Like, you know, she was at home drinking wine, about to go to bed, but then maybe she got a text and decided to go ahead and go out. Regardless, on this night of June 2nd, 2011, which soon turned to June 3rd, Lauren received a couple of texts from Jay Rosenbaum saying he was having a party at his townhouse and he invited her to come. Ultimately, Lauren decided to go and she can be seen on a small wood plaza surveillance camera leaving her apartment to head out for the night. The Indy Star reported that when Lauren left her apartment, it was about 12.30 a.m. on June 3rd. And actually, another IU student and resident at Smallwood Plaza, David Roan, can be seen leaving the apartment complex with her. The two arrived at Jay Rosenbaum's townhouse just minutes later. However, I don't think her friend David Roan stayed at the party very long, like perhaps he just walked Lauren over because he can be seen returning to the Smallwood Plaza apartments a short time later without Lauren, only by himself. Then he was not seen leaving his apartment again until much later in the day, sometime after 11 a.m. on June 3rd. When Lauren arrived at Jay's party, though, she was already pretty intoxicated by all accounts. But at the party, she began talking to Corey Rossman, Jay's friend whom she had recently met at the Indy 500. The two of them, both Lauren and Corey, became even more visibly intoxicated, and at some point while they were at Jay's house, they decided to go two doors down to Corey's townhouse that he shared with Michael Beth. I'm not sure exactly how long they were at Corey's and Michael's place, but I'm assuming it wasn't very long because Michael confirmed that when they got there, they decided they wanted to drink some more and actually go out to a popular hangout called Kilroy's Sports Bar, which was super close, only a quick walk away. So Lauren and Corey headed to the bar and within three minutes, they were there. Now, Lauren was only 20, but sources say she was drinking at the bar, which means She either had a fake ID or a more likely scenario was that Corey was buying the drinks for her since he was 21. While at Kilroy's, Lauren and Corey ended up on the patio area, which was set up to look and feel like a beach scene, even equipped with sand and beach chairs that bar patrons could sit in. It was during this time while they were sitting out there that Lauren decided to take off her shoes so she could put her toes in the sand. According to an episode of ABC's 2020, Lauren and Corey arrived at Kilroy's at about 2 a.m. and they were only there for about 30 minutes. Also, Lauren was observed in the bar stumbling and needing Corey's help to walk out of there, all while leaving her shoes and her phone behind. So let me paint this picture for you. Lauren, a 90 to 95 pound young woman, was visibly inebriated. 
to the point that she needed assistance from Corey to stand and walk. Plus, she was walking barefoot down the street because they never went back to get her shoes or her phone that night. Apparently, though, the nightlife slash bar scene in Bloomington was so chaotic and kind of crazy that it wasn't uncommon to see young college-aged women walking around downtown without their shoes. Don't ask me why. (laughs) I guess that's just an after effect of all the alcohol. Anyway, the next part of the timeline gets a little murky, but I'll do my best to explain. After leaving the bar, Corey and Lauren decided to go back to Lauren's apartment in Smallwood Plaza rather than Corey's townhouse, which, as I said before, was actually a closer walk from Kilroy's, like literally only about a one-minute walk away. But these apartments that Lauren lived in, well, again, they weren't your average apartments that you might picture a college student living in. For example, there was no, like, outside entrance to her apartment door. It was an upscale apartment building that you'd see on TV. Like there was a main entrance in like a foyer or lobby area with an elevator that led up to each unit from the inside. So once Lauren and Corey arrived to Smallwood Plaza, they rode the elevator up to the fifth floor where her apartment was located. But as they were getting off the elevator, they actually ran into a small group of other IU students, all of the students whom Lauren knew. And one of those students in particular was, I guess, really good friends with Lauren's boyfriend, Jesse Wolf. That student was Zach Oates. And when Zach quickly realized just how drunk Lauren appeared to be, and then also realized she wasn't with her boyfriend, but with some dude they didn't really know too well, Zach got a little protective and offered to help Lauren. Corey, though, got a little territorial and told Zach, look, she's okay, I got it. At that point, Zach told Corey to just make sure she got inside safely so she could go to sleep because she needed to go to sleep. To that, Corey cursed at Zach and some words were exchanged and before you knew it, Zach became so concerned that Corey was trying to take advantage of Lauren that he hauled off and decked Corey. Like he straight up punched him in the face, which left Corey bruised and even a bit disoriented, according to Crime Weekly. After this, I'm not sure why they didn't just go ahead and go on into Lauren's apartment because it was like literally feet away. But for some reason, they decided to head back to Corey's house. There are tons of reasons that I could speculate as to why they didn't go ahead and go to Lauren's apartment, you know, since they were just right there. (laughs) But it's probably because he wanted to sleep with her. And after getting punched in the face, they couldn't exactly do that there now, could they? (laughs) But who am I to speculate? Anyway, for some reason, in their drunken stupors, they headed out of the building and back outside. Surveillance footage from the Smallwood Plaza apartments showed Lauren stumbling out of the elevator and Corey helping her. About a block away, a woman told police she saw Lauren sitting on some steps, and the woman said she witnessed Lauren try to stand up, but when she did, Lauren fell backward and hit her head on one of the concrete steps. Apparently, the woman asked if she needed help, but Corey told the woman that Lauren was fine and that he'd take care of her. So the woman went on about her night. As they were walking down the sidewalk after this, more surveillance showed Lauren falling again, very hard on her face. Like she didn't allow her hands to break her fall because like she was so drunk. So she quite literally fell on her face. Now, remember, Lauren is still barefoot this whole time. At around 2.48 a.m., which was only a little over two hours since Lauren first left her apartment for the night, but around 2.48, Lauren and Corey were seen entering an alley that led to Corey's house. 
Crime Weekly reported that both of them by this time were visibly drunk and both were stumbling around. And at some point as they were walking through the alley, Lauren lost the rest of her things, dropping both her purse and her keys, and she also fell several times as well. She was falling so much probably because she was barefoot and drunk, but she was falling so much that Corey ended up picking her up and carrying her the rest of the way over his shoulders in like a fireman's type of hold. The two of them finally arrived back at Corey's and Michael's townhome at about 3 a.m. Michael Beth, Corey's roommate, noted that they were so loud as they were coming in that he actually thought someone was breaking into their apartment for a second. I guess he had been up still because he was working on a paper. But Not long after they arrived, Corey allegedly became ill from all the drinking and ended up throwing up on their stairs. At that point, Michael led Corey to his room and Corey went to bed. Then, Michael alleged that Lauren told him that she wanted to go back to her apartment with him for some more drinks. But Michael didn't think this was a good idea, clearly. (laughs) So he tried to convince her to stay there, to lay down on their couch and crash for the night. When he couldn't convince her to just go to sleep, though, Michael contacted his neighbor, Jay Rosenbaum, to help her, you know, since she was basically Jay's friend and Michael had only recently met her. So when Lauren got to Jay's, it was now about 3.30 a.m. and Jay noticed that not only was Lauren incredibly inebriated, but she also had a large bruise under her eye, most likely from the hard fall she had taken that night. When Jay asked Lauren, though, how she got the bruise, Lauren allegedly told him she couldn't remember. After this, Jay said he tried to convince her to crash on his couch and sleep it off, like he offered her a blanket and a pillow, but she apparently insisted that she wanted to go home. Since we know Lauren didn't have her phone at this point, though, Jay tried making two calls for Lauren from his phone, both of which were calls to Lauren's friends to try and help her get home. Jay made one call to David Roan, who had initially walked with Lauren over to Jay's house, and a second call was to another one of Lauren's friends, though nothing says specifically who that call was to. I'm sure it was somebody who was one of their mutual friends and somebody who, like, Jay had the information, like the contact information for, since, you know, he was using his phone. Both phone calls, however, went unanswered. I mean, it was nearly 4 a.m., and Jay didn't leave any messages. Jay claimed that the last time he saw Lauren, she had ultimately decided to walk the short distance, only two and a half blocks, to her own apartment. At around 4.30 a.m., Jay reportedly watched her walk down the street in the direction of the Smallwood Plaza apartments, barefoot, highly intoxicated, and alone. According to a 2017 article in the Herald Times, the host of the party where she started and ended her night a.k.a. Jay, said he saw her turn the corner at 11th Street and College Avenue, and then that was the last time anyone ever saw Lauren because she never made it the short distance to her apartment and honestly just seemed to have dropped off the face of the earth. The next day, after Jesse woke up, he tried texting and calling Lauren, but everything went unanswered. Eventually, though, later in the afternoon, somebody did answer Lauren's phone, but it was a Kilroy's employee informing them that the phone had been left at the bar. So, Jesse, thinking he needed to check on Lauren at her apartment, but knowing he didn't have a key, I guess? Anyway, according to Crime Weekly, Jesse went to get a key to the apartment from Hadar Tamir, Lauren's roommate. But apparently, Hadar was actually in class, and so Jesse had to go to Hadar's class where she was to pick up the key. When Jesse finally did check the apartment, he quickly realized that Lauren was not there, and neither was any of her stuff. 
That's when he and other friends of Lauren decided they needed to call Lauren's parents and the police. Lauren was officially reported missing at about 4.30 p.m. on June 3rd, 2011. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Immediately, Lauren's parents started calling hospitals and clinics thinking maybe something had happened to her and she somehow ended up there. But that was to no avail. Then, the next day on June 4th, her parents flew to Bloomington, Indiana to search for their missing daughter. According to the reporting of Peter D. Kramer for the Indy Star, Lauren's dad, Rob Spearer, flew in from New York and Charlene Spearer, who was visiting family, flew in from Alabama. Y'all, Rob and Charlene stayed in Indiana for six months the whole time with their boots to the ground, hanging flyers, searching for their daughter everywhere, and even combing through the Bloomington woods, calling out Lauren's name. According to the Indy Star, IU set up a $50,000 search fund and the Spears themselves offered up a $100,000 reward for information about Lauren and her whereabouts, which actually grew to a $250,000 reward after an anonymous donor's contribution. A Facebook page called Help Find Lauren Spearer quickly generated over 12,000 followers, a page which is now titled Official Lauren Spearer Updates from Her Family and has over 92,000 followers. Authorities also scorned lakes and forests and even searched through over 4,000 tons of trash at a landfill as a last resort. According to a 2021 article in the Indy Star, published 10 years after Lauren's disappearance, police received thousands of tips, as in over 36,000 tips and countless leads. But unfortunately, nothing has panned out. Not one tip has led to Lauren in the past 10, almost 11 years now. And in 2019, this case even made Time Magazine's list of the top five most mysterious disappearances of all time. So let's talk about what could have possibly happened to Lauren in the early hours of June 3rd, 2011. According to the Indy Star, police initially had 10 persons of interest they started looking at, though they have never officially named those people or any suspects at all for that matter. The young men who spent the most time with Lauren that night, particularly Corey Rossman and Jason, or Jay Rosenbaum, retained legal counsel relatively quickly, as did Jesse Wolf, Lauren's boyfriend. Several sources say that Jesse actually stuck around and helped with the initial search of looking for Lauren, but after a couple of days, his parents swooped in and took him back home to New York. His parents also hired him a lawyer, and he took a private polygraph through his attorney, which he passed. 
And from what I gather, I think they ruled out Jesse pretty quickly because they were able to like corroborate his whereabouts. Plus, everyone who was interviewed, including all of Lauren's closest friends, said Jesse could never hurt or harm Lauren because he loved her very much and he was just a good, caring boyfriend who often protected Lauren when they'd go out. Also, according to the Herald Times, the only reason Lauren was still in Bloomington that summer was because she was waiting for Jesse to finish up a summer class so the two could travel back to the East Coast together for the remainder of the summer. So that brings us to Jay Rosenbaum, you know, Lauren's friend who invited her to the party at his townhome. Jay actually hired two lawyers, Jennifer Luke Meyer and James H. Voyles, the latter of which is a high-profile criminal defense attorney who represented Mike Tyson when he went on trial for rape in 1992. However, Jay did take a private polygraph through his attorneys, and by their account, he passed. Also, Crime Weekly reported that Jay did give two statements to police, and he even rode with them to the intersection where he said he had last seen Lauren walking. Jay also handed over his cell phone to police so they could look through it. That brings us to roommates Michael Beth and Corey Rossman, who lived a couple of doors down from Jay in those same townhomes. According to the Indy Star, both Michael and Corey submitted to DNA tests, and both hired lawyers of their own as well. They, too, though, both took private polygraphs through their lawyers, which apparently they passed as well. But Lauren's parents have been adamant that the guys know more than they let on, and they wonder if Lauren ever left five North townhomes alive that night. In an interview with ABC's 2020, the Spears said Corey, the one who spent the most time with Lauren, has been the only friend who has refused to speak with them, and he claims he lost all of his memory of what happened that night after being punched by Zach Oates. He even told 2020, quote, I was not the last person with her. This is all I can say. I'm sorry, but I hope that they find her as soon as possible, and I'm praying for her and her family, end quote. But Lauren's parents just simply don't buy that. And Robert Spearer said of Corey Rossman, quote, I think it's a case of self-preservation, understandable human condition. I'm not sure of anything, but what I do know is that there's been a complete lack of cooperation. And he was the person who spent the most time with Lauren in the last hours of her being seen, end quote. In fact, the Indy Star reported that in June 2013, Robin Charlene Spearer filed a civil lawsuit against Corey Rossman, Michael Beth, and Jason Rosenbaum. The suit basically claimed negligence and that the young men owed Lauren a duty of care, but failed to make sure she got home safely. However, a federal judge dismissed the civil negligence suit in October 2014, citing that they failed to prove the young men were at fault for Lauren's disappearance. Lauren's parents also enlisted help from a high-profile private investigation firm in New York City. WRTV, an ABC affiliate in Indiana, reported that the Spears hired Bo Deedle and Associates, where they began working with Mike Saravolo, the president of that investigation firm. In 2016, the investigators hired by the Spears began working alongside ABC News chief, investigative correspondent Brian Ross, and former FBI agent and ABC News consultant Brad Garrett. Their investigation was featured on an episode of ABC's 2020, and they revealed a quite shocking theory of what might have happened to Lauren. Apparently, Lauren had a serious heart condition called Long QT Syndrome. It's a condition that can potentially cause fast, chaotic heartbeat, which could trigger a person to suddenly faint, and in severe cases, it can cause seizures and even death. This meant that Lauren took a daily medication for her heart condition to help prevent dangerous heartbeat episodes. They also received reports that Lauren had been experimenting with drugs that night, 
particularly ecstasy, and they believe she may have accidentally overdosed as she was partying that night. Now, this might sound like a bit of a shock, but it's not that far-fetched because several sources reported that when police searched Lauren's apartment after her disappearance, they did find a small amount of cocaine in her room. Brad Garrett said, quote, If you couple alcohol, drugs, and a genetic heart issue that she had, that is a toxic mix, end quote. Lauren's parents, though disappointed in learning that their daughter had experimented with drugs, said they didn't realize the degree of partying that went on among IU students, because it was definitely part of the culture, not just something Lauren was doing. Meaning it wasn't uncommon for students to dabble or experiment with different recreational drugs. However, Charlene Spearer said, quote, I think she didn't make wise choices that night, but she didn't make herself disappear, end quote. And that's exactly the theory that Brad Garrett and the PIs involved with the case came up with. Apparently, according to 2020, they received a tip from a former IU student who was behind bars for a completely unrelated incident. And I would be remiss if I didn't share exactly what this guy did to land him in prison. So here goes. The guy's name is also Corey. A different Corey, of course, not Corey Rossman. But the guy's name is Corey Hammersley, who was at least an acquaintance of the guys who were with Lauren that night. Hammersley, once a star student and athlete at Indiana University, let the partying scene get the best of him. And one day he was super high on drugs and for some reason he decided to go out into the street, buck naked except for a ball cap on his head, and he began shooting a gun into a house from the street. He fired 15 rounds into the house, which landed him 24 years in state prison. Hammersley, while in prison, was playing cards with another inmate when information about Lauren's disappearance came on the TV. Reportedly, Hammersley told the other guy, quote, Man, I knew the guys that did that, end quote. That inmate, whom Hammersley basically confided in, agreed to be interviewed by 2020 reporters, but only if they blacked out his face. Then, that inmate told reporters that Lauren OD'd on ecstasy, which they were all doing that night, not just Lauren, and that the guys got scared and didn't know what to do, so they made a pact and took her to the Ohio River to dispose of her body. Yet, when they interviewed Corey Hammersley himself, he denied all of it, and he even denied knowing Lauren at all. So, they asked Corey if he would contact them if he did, by chance, remember something or if anything might have jogged his memory. But he said, quote, honestly, probably not. I do not want to be associated with this at all, end quote. Brad Garrett told ABC reporter Brian Ross that this tells them Corey Hammersley likely has something to hide or some reason for lying. Garrett said, quote, they are 18, 19, 20 years old. The last thing they want is the Bloomington police to come in, find drugs, and a dead co-ed. And so we believe somebody panicked and got rid of her, end quote. And Charlene Spearer is unwavering in her belief that more than one person was involved in Lauren's disappearance. However, there have been other theories that Lauren met with foul play by an unknown suspect, like a random predator, especially because she was an ideal target at the time. For starters, one of the only photos that police released to the public from all the surveillance footage they had was a not-so-clear still image of a four-door white pickup truck. Apparently, the truck had been driving around the area and had circled the block during the time frame when Lauren was last seen. Eventually, police were led to the owner, and he said he was in the area picking up a worker for his business, whatever that means. 
But later, when Brad Garrett and ABC News began to investigate, they tracked down another tip. And I guess that tip led to a guy by the name of James McClish, who owned a similar white truck at the time and had just gotten paroled from assaulting his ex-wife. Apparently, McClish lived in a halfway house at the time of Lauren's disappearance, which was only 10 minutes away from where Lauren went missing. But I'm not sure if that means a 10-minute drive or a 10-minute walk. But regardless, McClish agreed to take a polygraph on TV for 2020 in effort to officially clear his name, which they claim he did with flying colors. So that lead fizzled out. According to a very recent article from January 2022, published by Inside Edition Digital, Zaravalo, the private investigator for Bo Deedle and Associates, said Jay Rosenbaum claimed he went out on the terrace of his townhouse and hollered at Lauren as she was walking away. He told her, quote, text me when you find your phone, end quote. Then, Saravalo said, Jay claimed he wasn't 100% sure, but he thinks he may have seen another individual in the shadows intercept Lauren on the corner of 11th and College when she rounded that corner, but then Jay lost sight of her. To me, this is a very interesting detail because Crime Weekly reported that a homeless man actually came forward and told police very early on in the investigation that he heard a woman screaming in the area near where Lauren went missing, and he reportedly heard the screams at about 4.35 a.m. Soon after, she left Jay's at 4.30. According to the Indy Star, another theory is that a man by the name of Daniel Messel was responsible for Lauren's disappearance. You see, in 2015, Messel killed IU student Hannah Wilson. Her body was ultimately found near Plum Creek in Brown County, Indiana, and Messel's cell phone was found near her feet. Prosecuting attorney for Brown County Ted Adams, who helped convict Messel and put him away for 80 years, told the Indy Star that he thinks Messel could be responsible for Lauren's disappearance because after he worked the case for 16 straight months, it just sounded like it could very well be part of Messel's M.O., he could have very well done to Lauren what he did to Hannah. However, Bloomington police have not said whether or not Messel is a suspect in the case. Regardless of the theories of what might have happened to Lauren, police have been pretty tight-lipped and have kept most of their information close to their sides, not releasing much for the public or family to go on. For example, the only two images they released of Lauren from that night was a grainy image from the surveillance camera at the Smallwood Plaza apartments as she was leaving for the night. And then another was the not-so-clear photo of that white pickup truck, which ended up having nothing to do with Lauren at all. Also, despite tons of surveillance footage that they collected, they have never publicly released any of it, instead electing to just tell the public details that they want them to know and hear. Even Bloomington Police Chief Michael Dykoff told 2020 in 2016 that they are electing not to try this case in the media. However, Bloomington Police insist that it is still very much an open and active investigation, and they are still taking tips regularly, still following leads as they come in. So that means Lauren's parents and her older sister, Rebecca, are left with more questions than answers as each January and June passes. They mark those months because Lauren's birthday is in January and her disappearance was in June. Lauren would have turned 31 on January 17th of this year, and this coming June will mark 11 years since she disappeared. So I'd like to end with words from Lauren's mother, Charlene, who posted a message on findlauren.com. It reads, Help us find Lauren. 
If you are reading this, you have most likely been introduced to Lauren. Whether you watched a show, listened to a podcast, read a blog, saw something on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, you may know her story. I never expected to see October without Lauren. I never expected to feel the change of seasons. When the initial searches began, someone said searches for Lauren would be easier once the leaves fell and the fields of summer crops had been cleared. Once hunting season begins, virtually another source of searchers would come into play. I guess you've known all along we would still be searching for Lauren on this fall day. It's inconceivable that I wrote those words in October 2011. We are still no closer. We are still without answers. We are still searching now almost 10 years later. How soon will it be 20 years later? The time ebbs and flows with no notice of a family who has lost someone. It seems like only yesterday someone offered Rob a pair of pants noticing his legs ripped to shreds from searching deep in the forests of Indiana. It seems like only yesterday Rebecca received the call telling her that her sister was missing. It seems like only yesterday I honestly thought I could ask for help from people who knew what happened to Lauren and they would willingly come to our aid, but I was wrong. They never came. If you are reading this, you have most likely been introduced to Lauren. I end as I began on June 3rd, 2011. If anyone has any information about the disappearance of our daughter, Lauren Spearer, please contact us. We continue to search for answers. As always, hoping today is the day. Charlene Spear. You guys, anyone with information about Lauren Spear's disappearance can call the Bloomington Police Department at 812-339-4471 or they can call Bo Deedle and Associates at 1-800-777-9366. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 27. As always, be sure to check out this podcast on social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Podcast on Instagram and Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook. Or if you want to request a specific case or story, you can email me at campuscrimepodcast at gmail.com. Also, (laughs) before I go, I just want to ask a a simple favor of y'all. I'm trying to get the word out about Campus Crime Chronicles about this podcast because I just don't think many people know it exists. Well, what you can do for me is one of two things or both if you haven't done them already. But first, you could leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Again, if you haven't done so already. And then second, you could simply tell one other person about Campus Crime Chronicles over the next two weeks. Yep, that's all you have to do. Just share with your friends about how much you love this podcast. (laughs) Well, that's all for today, so bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and is edited and produced by Giari Gassaway. The logo and cover art for this podcast was designed by Brady Burns. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.